You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. Today's episode is sponsored by the Foundry Community blog. The Foundry Community is a place for growth, love, formation, and fellowship. With featured writers like Jaron Rowell, Tara Beth Leach, Michael Palmer, Robbie Kanzler, and Tim Gaines, the Community blog provides a platform for discussion in areas of ministry and life where conversation, support, and insight can happen. Join the conversation over at thefoundrycommunity.com. I know we finished season two, but we just couldn't stay away. With so many incredible books coming out this holiday season, we at Young Clergy Network wanted to introduce you to a few of our favorites. This author story features J.R. Forresteros, teaching pastor from Catalyst Rowlett, whose new book, Empathy for the Devil, is available now. And hey, thanks for all you do for young pastors, and thanks for tuning in. J.R. Foresteros. He's the teaching pastor at Catalyst Rowlett in in Rowlett, Texas. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. I listen all the time, so it's really an honor to be on. Oh, well, I'm super excited about this episode, and I'm excited to talk about your book. Um, first, kind of tell us, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? I came late, so I was raised... Okay, I was raised Southern Baptist, but both of my parents were raised Methodist. Okay. So, like, there's definitely Wesleyan heritage, Mm -hmm. like, in my family. Right. But, of course, I didn't know any of that growing up. Right. When I would go visit my grandparents, I thought the difference between the Methodist churches and the Baptist church that I attended were more like the difference between a suburban and a small town church, you know? And, like, now looking back, of course, I can see differences. But then it just never occurred to me all the way up through high school, like, even in high school... We had a Bible study at school. Like, there was a teacher who let us use his classroom before school. And so once a week, my friends and I would get together and just read scripture together and discuss it and pray together. And, I mean, again, they were from all, you know, Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist, Methodist, whatever. And we it just never occurred to us to, like, ask why those were different. Like, we just mm. all kind of read scripture together and shared and prayed and whatever. Mm. And so, you know, I was called into ministry when I was 16-ish and decided I was going to go to the Baptist college, you know, uh, pretty close to home because there were students from that college that would come and help out with our youth group. So Aww. I college students I looked up to that I thought were great examples of what it looked like to walk with Jesus mm-hmm. that I thought, wow, if that, you know, if they're getting such a great spiritual formative experience at this college, then that's where I should go. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got to that Baptist college that I started learning what Baptists are. Cause all in my youth group in Sunday mornings, I don't recall a single instance where one of the church leaders was like by god we're baptists and this so this is what we do like it was never that it was just we're christian we love jesus and again looking back it can tell that we were very moderate southern baptist church but Mm. it wasn't until i got to college where there were all these baptists from all these different backgrounds who like were saying we don't do this because we're baptists or we do this because we're baptists and i was like oh huh so strange as it sounds like that's when i first started thinking about denominations in any sort of meaningful way yeah and the more i learned about how to read scripture, the more I studied, the more I kept trying to take my faith seriously. I think the, I was just on this trajectory towards a Wesleyan understanding of God. Mm. Uh, I graduated from that under that, that uh, university and I went to graduate school at the University of Missouri, which is a secular graduate program, but I studied religion. Mm. And at, during that time, I was a youth, ba- uh, youth pastor at Southern Baptist Church, got ordained in the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, and then spent six years um, there 
uh, finished grad school and stayed on there. And during that whole time, I had a, my best friend, uh, who I actually write about in the book, uh, was had also been at that graduate school, but then went and got an MDiv at Asbury. Mm. And so as we were both sort of growing theologically together, he was the one that had the language for it. Mm. I was like, you're not weird, you're just Wesleyan. Yeah. You know, and so, uh, I mean, the short version is I, I got an Acts 29 pastor got me fired from my youth pastorship because I denied penal substitutionary atonement. And uh, so that was about yeah, three months before I was getting married. And my wife, my then soon to be wife and I had to figure out what we were going to do. And I thought, you know, we could either just like get jobs at Starbucks and live in a studio apartment and love conquers all and like whatever, that's fine. But we might as well just kind of cast the net out and see where we land. Mm. And there was a church in Dayton, Ohio, that was a Beaver Creek Church in the Nazarene that was hiring a young adult pastor to run a coffee shop ministry on a college campus. Mm. I was like, wow, that sounds right up my alley. I had been doing some college ministry alongside the youth ministry um, in my graduate uh, Columbia, where I went to graduate school. And, and she had as well. We actually met in doing college ministry together. Gotcha. And so we thought, man, that would be a great fit for both of us. And so we applied there. I, you know, I did my due diligent research on Wikipedia to see whether or not I could serve in good conscience <laughs> in the Church of the Nazarene. No, wait, wait, wait. And, how did you find out? Like, how did you technically find out about this? Churchstaffing.com. Really? Yes. And it turned out they had made the the church on the church's side. They had they had been struggling to fill this position. They'd had a couple of really bad hires, mm. and they believed in the ministry, but they knew that if they if it was going to survive and thrive, they needed to be really careful with the next person they hired. So they actually hired a consulting firm that brought uh, that put it on the website. They put me through like I didn't again. I found all this afterwards. They put me through this extensive personality test, and then she, the the consultant actually gave them questions to try to get under my skin to like see how I because I'm relatively like prideful and I'm pretty sure I'm right about things all the time. And so they were like disagree with him, like just like flat out in the interview, like push on him and see what happens because my suspicion is he won't handle it well. And <gasps> that is hilarious. Yeah. That's now, for, amazing. Fortunately, like I have grown in that area. Right, and right. so I, again, when they did that, I didn't even like recognize that that's what they were doing or anything. And I, apparently I handled it well enough because they hired me. So. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, I, before I even submitted my application, I had done, I, you know, explored what Nazarenes believe about entire sanctification and all of that. And I, I decided, A, not only do I fit really well in a Wesleyan context, but I can, I can in good conscience serve in a church of the Nazarene and not mm-hmm. feel like I'm having to like fake it, you know, yeah. which is very different from my Southern Baptist experience by that time. So cool. Uh, yeah. So I, we got married one Saturday and the next Saturday drove to Dayton, Ohio and started, uh, started everything over there. And we were there for five years and then we came down to Dallas to be a Catalyst. So awesome. Okay. So tell me, give me a kind of the two minute version. What is Catalyst like? Yeah. So we say Catalyst is church for people that don't like church. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we try our, our, our main focus. We say, well, our, our, our focus right now is we say Catalyst creates spaces where everyone can embrace their God-given calling. So we're trying to make people feel immediately welcomed when they come in. We're trying to get them connected to serving in the church and to try to figure out how God has wired them to, uh, you know, give life back into the world. Gosh, I love that. Yeah. So it's, I mean, we're kind of a rock and roll church. I know I preach in jeans and a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, I have a lay preaching team. So I'm, I'm in the pulpit 
well, it kind of varies on the time of year and kind of what's going on. But I, I'm right now probably about three weeks out of four, and we're trying to scale that down to where it's closer to like half the time. That's great. Um, and then I have a bu- again a bunch of people in the congregation that that have been gifted to teach and preach, and so part of what I see my job as the teaching pastor to do is to equip them mm-hmm. to use their gifts for the good of the congregation. And our, our main space to do that is, is in the pulpit. And so I say pulpit, we, we don't have a pulpit, we have a platform. But, um, <laughs> to put them into the preaching moment and for them to preach. And mm-hmm. so even this, this past Sunday, I was out of town and uh, one of my uh, one of my lay preachers preached and just was phenomenal, you know. Gosh, so, that's so cool. Yeah, so... Tell me a couple other things, like what makes Catalyst unique? Uh, I think it... I'm, I don't know how to put my finger on this, but... When people come in there, they say all the time, and we hear this like every single new person that walks in the door says, I felt like I was immediately comfortable and welcomed and like I could totally be myself and not have to be afraid of being judged. Mm. Um, I think that's a culture that that I inherited Mm. coming there, but it's one we've certainly tried to double down on. And I think honestly, going forward, it's going to get, it's going to mean our church is really messy because again, people are just, when we say you really can come here and bring all your junk with you. People are like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so they take you up on um, it. Yeah, so that's part of it. I think part of it too, and I don't I don't know if this is unique to Catalyst, but like our like most of almost all of our people serve in some way, whether mm-hmm. that's in the children's ministry or in the tech stuff or in worship or on the preaching team or what like it seems like and maybe it's because we're a smaller congregation, but but it seems like in a lot of churches they say like twenty percent of the people do eighty percent of the work. Right. And that's just not at all the case at Catalyst. I, I haven't actually run the numbers, but it's probably more like 75% of our people who are regular attenders are involved in serving. And that's one of the things we do when we all, every week we say, hey, if you're new here, we do this once a month thing called a newcomer's lunch where we can give you a next step to get connected. And I would say in the past six months, we that, that next step has started being, you can start serving. Like, mm-hmm. where do you want to start serving? Just like get it because we want that to be the DNA of our congregation. I say all the time, God is a giver. So we're most like God when we're giving. And and again, financially, sure, but also like giving through our service. And so I think part of the character of the church is this, this like radical welcome. And then also this like, well, go ahead and get to work. Like if you want to be a part here, just start, just start serving, you know? I feel like that empowering culture could be the topic of your next book <laughs> we'll see. or a book in the future. Um, okay. So before we get into the book, um, one of the things I'm really curious about is how you create space to write. Did you know you always wanted to write a book? Do you write one day a week? Do you write in the mornings? Talk to me about the like logistics of writing this book. Yeah. So, um, I have always wanted to, I, I say always people have asked like, when did you first want to do that? And mm. I'm like, as far as I can tell, it's as long as I can remember. Mm. I'm sure when I was two, I didn't want to, sure. but, uh, maybe it was, maybe it was, towards the end of high school when I actually had a couple of writing projects that I enjoyed. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, writing a five-paragraph theme on what I did on my summer vacation isn't particularly fun. But getting to write this paper about kind of whatever I want was actually interesting and challenging. Mm-hmm. I've always been uh, an avid reader. And so, you know, s- just kind of soaking myself in good writing has been helpful in that as well. Yeah. But then, I, I mean, I had a blog back in the days of Zanga. And so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there you go. That dates me. I know, but no, like, I did too. Which, that's why yeah, that's funny. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I just and you know back then that was like before blogging was a thing people could do to right. get famous, and it was just like an online journal. Right. So you just put up 
whatever you wanted on yeah. there. And like maybe a few close friends were reading it. Right, yeah. right. Well, but what's interesting is we did develop like this really interesting network of people. Like I have friends in my life now that I met through Zanga. Wow. Um, that I'm that I'm in con- and uh, Bryn Lewis, one, one of my podcast co-hosts on Origami Elephants, like sh- we met on Zanga. <laughs> Um, and, and, and just enjoyed each other's writing and have like walked through some pretty painful life experiences together and have Mm. only met in person once. Wow. Um, but we are, I mean, we're very close, you know? Uh, so yeah. So again, writing just that. And I mean, when I was on Zanga, I didn't write every day. I didn't have any kind of habit. It was, I I was blogging probably three, four times a week Mm. and it really helped me begin to explore what my voice is. Mm -hmm. And it did just get me in the habit of putting words on a page. And then of course, when I started preaching, which was much, much, much later, I I mean, when, so my, I manuscript my sermons, Mm -hmm. which means that I'm writing every week I'm preaching, I'm writing 25 to 3,500 words finished, you know, edited and ready to go every week. And, uh, so getting in the habit of like getting in the habit of writing wasn't outside of my occupation, mm-hmm. but then creating space to actually do a project for fun right. was pretty challenging. It took me longer to write my book proposal and send it to my agent than it did for me to write the whole book. Why is that? Uh, once I had signed a contract, <laughs> I had to, I had to turn locked. it in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so having that like deadline, on the which which I I mean, if you're thinking about writing a book, apparently those deadlines are like a little flexible. But I didn't want to I didn't want to be late on that commitment. Right. So once I had a deadline and I knew about how many words my book I I, I mean I signed a contract for fifty five thousand words and I knew I my writing sample that I turned in was like eight thousand words. So I just fifty five thousand minus eight thousand divided by ninety days because that was how long I had. And then it was like oh wow. I have to write five hundred words a night. So. That was, I would just, and my wife was very understanding. She said, you know, she was very excited for me, obviously. And so I said, hey, you know, when it's when it's writing time, I'm just going to go lock myself in my office. And if it takes me 30 minutes to write 500 words, great. If it takes me two hours to write 500 words, that's okay. Some nights I wrote, some nights I just, it was in the zone and I cranked out 2,000 words. Some nights I had to take it off because I had a pastoral responsibility or, you know, whatever. But just making it a point to as often as I could be in front of the screen writing. Um, now, for instance, like I have a book proposal that my agent and my editor have both asked for. And they're like, hey, as soon as that's ready, get it to me. And I'm like, great, I'm super excited to get it in. I love this next book idea, blah, blah, blah. It, like I haven't opened that document in two months mm-hmm. because I've just had other stuff going on and there's no like urgency, there's no deadline. Right. Um, and I mean, I'm trying to get this other book. I mean, there's other things going on too. But yeah, uh, yeah part of it for me is about sort of just like imposing a, an artificial deadline on myself and mm-hmm. saying, okay, this is going to be done at the end of the month and then what do I need to do to make that happen? It does help that my wife... Uh, she does roller derby, so she's gone like three nights a week doing roller derby. So those are like nights that I have to myself, like that I can, I'm just at home, right. you know, and if I just tell people I'm busy and I can, I can dedicate that to writing. So that, that also does help that there's plenty of time in our schedule as a couple that I can be writing that it's, I'm not ignoring her, you know, she has her own stuff going on too, so. Okay, so tell me about the book itself. Um it's called Empathy for the Devil. Empathy for the Devil, yeah. Which is actually, it's, okay. So. Did you choose the title? I did, and that was so, oh man. So, I actually had written a different book. Mm. Well, a different book proposal. Uh, if, you, if you don't know about nonfiction publishing, um, you, you don't need to write the whole book. 
you need to write what's called a book proposal. And it's a document that basically you're trying to convince the publisher that they're going to make money off, off of you. So mm. here's my book idea. Here's me. Here's why I'm a good person to write this book. Here's all my like social media platform and all this kind of stuff. And then you have a writing sample, which is usually two or three chapters of the book and then like a chapter outline so they get a feel for the rest of it. So I took some sermons that I had done that I was really excited about, turned them into a book proposal. It got me my agent. Uh, he loved it and he was like, yeah, but then he shopped it and no one wanted it. So he mm. came back to me and he said, do you have any other ideas? Right. I thought, well, I had preached this sermon a year or two before that during Advent. And for Advent, our series said we had taken the traditional nativity scene and kind of deconstructed it and said, how did each of the, how did each of the characters around the nativity scene get to, like, what was their journey to the manger? Oh, like, I love that. Uh, so, you know, the shepherds, like, how did they get there? And what, what does that mean for us? Holy family, the, the Magi, you know. And then we did a week on Herod. And it was like, well, if Herod was the king of Israel, why wasn't he there? Like, mm. like for we don't see it because I think we grew up with nativity scenes. But for an ancient Jew, like, that would have been a glaring omission that the king of Israel is not present at the birth of the Messiah. Mm. And so we kind of asked that, well, why not? Like, And so just like we were doing with all of the other characters, we tried to say, like, who was this guy for real? And why wasn't he there? Like, what was preventing him from making that journey to Christ? Mm. And so I dove deep into Herod's world and Herod's character and the history of Herod in a way that I never had before because he's just like the Grinch of the Christmas story, right? Right, right. Um, and so when I, when I preached that message and I, I invited people to understand Herod and to see themselves in Herod. Mm. Again, that was probably like the second week of Advent, maybe, because we didn't want to do it right before Christmas because it's, you know, a pretty depressing story. Right. Uh, like after the New Year, so three, four, five, six weeks later, people were coming up to me at church and just saying, I can't quit thinking about Herod. I can't quit. I can't get him out of my mind and how much of myself I see reflected in his story and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And I was like, okay, like... That never happens with <laughs> that never happens with sermons. <laughs> like if you ask someone on Tuesday what the sermon was about, they're like, uh, you know. Right, so the right. fact that like months later, mm -hmm. multiple people were still engaged with it and it was still haunting them in a way. Mm. That there's there's something to that. So when my agent said, "Hey, do you have any other ideas?" I was like, "Well, you know, I have this idea about Herod, and I had done similar kinds of stuff with Cain, mm. and then uh, I had never done anything publicly, but I had some similar ideas with even Satan." Mm. And so I thought, well, I don't know, let me like, let me take a whack at this like bad guys of the Bible kind of a thing and, not, and, and try to do it in a way that's, you know, like there's that bad girls of the Bible book. I don't know how many people know about it, but, but that author um, modernizes the stories. Mm -hmm. So she tells like a modern day Jezebel or a modern day Eve or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I thought, what if we don't do that? What if, what if I try to keep these characters in their ancient setting yeah. and, and just try to help people enter into that. And the, the immediate barrier that I came up against was that when when you lecture someone, it's all in an intellectual movement. So mm. again, you can help people intellectually comprehend who Herod was and what he was doing. But um, I think one of the differences between a book and a sermon is you don't get any of the emotive stuff that you get in a sermon, right? You don't get any of the, the, the pathos. Mm. And so uh, a good friend of mine, Matt Michalatis, who's a fantastic author, had recently released a book called The First Time We Saw Him, which where he he modernizes Jesus, but he basically retells the stories of Jesus as though Jesus came today. Mm -hmm. And he, he called it an emotional translation of the Gospels because Ooh. he said a narrative 
connects you emotionally. And he said, we read these stories, and by the time, it's like a joke, right? By the time you explain the story of the Good Samaritan, it sort of loses the emotional punch. Yeah. And so he said, what if we change, you know, the Samaritan to a Muslim, and we, you know, we and we change the Levite to a seminary graduate, and, you know, mm -hmm. all this kind of, we, again, we modernize it, and then you feel the offense of mm -hmm. the parable, like, much more deeply, that kind of stuff. So I thought, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll play with narrative, which I'd never, I'd never written fiction before, so I was pretty freaked out about it. But I tried it with my hand with Kane. I wrote the, I wrote the short story for Kane. I wrote the nonfiction part, and then I sent it to my agent, and he flipped out. He's like, this is fantastic. Give me the proposal as soon as you can. I was like, mm. Okay, great. So I, I put the proposal together. InterVarsity wanted it, and I had not, I had not done any, my, my original seven villains were all male, mm. because... One thing I know about female readers is that they hate it when men write women. Ooh. Like, they, they just feel like it's not very believable, you know? Right. So I thought, well, I'm already anxious about writing fiction, period. Mm. I'm not going to, like, add, like, another layer of uh, difficulty for myself. And yeah. if, if the book sells well by some chance and they want another one, then I can, you know, maybe, maybe do it then. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then when InterVarsity Press approached us and said that they were interested, they said, if this is not a men's ministry book, we would like you to put in some female villains. And I was like, I will do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> so You want it? You got it. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so I pulled, I cut Pharaoh, King Saul, and King Ahab, and I put in Delilah, Jezebel, and Herodias. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, so I have seven total villains, and there's a fiction short like short story, basically, where you're, I'm, I'm retelling their signature moment, but it's from their perspective, so you're seeing through their eyes. And again, my hope is that that, like, that helps you feel what they feel. That helps you connect emotionally with them. Mm. Um, so that, not, not to condone what they did, but so that it feels more like a tragedy when you get to the end of it, and you're, like, sad that that's how it ended up. Right. And then, then the second chapter is the more typical nonfiction, where I have some pastoral stories and some personal stories, and I go through the biblical context and, and all that kind of stuff. And, mm -hmm. and I, I try to explain what was at stake for these characters and how we find ourselves repeating their mistakes. And mm -hmm. So... That's, that's kind of it. So. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, what was your favorite chapter to write? Who's your favorite villain? It changed, like it changes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, but, but I think, I think the one that I was the most proud of, uh, personally was Jezebel. Mm. Uh, partly because again, all I really knew about her is that she's the evil queen. Right. But I found out in my research that her actual name was probably Jezebel, B-U-L, not B-E-L. Mm. Because that is a, that's actually a liturgical chant that the Canaanites used in their spring festival because uh, Baal is a fertility guy. I, I always say sort of like Thor, like he brings rain and thunder and all that. But he would sleep during the winter. Mm. And so they would have this spring festival to wake him up from his sleep so that he would bring the rain and bring the crops. And they would they would chant Jezebel, Jezebel, which means where is the prince? Where is the prince? Mm. And uh, again, it was all to wake him up. Mm. Uh, Zebel in Hebrew means dung because we're, I, we're a G rated podcast, right? So it means, sure. it means, means dung. <laughs> uh, and, and this is something we often see the biblical writers do. They'll sort of like smash a couple of different words together and to kind of make fun of some of their adversaries. Mm. So Jezebel actually sort of means like queen of poo. Mm. And it's, oh, it was clearly not her name. Right. Uh, her name was this, like, where is the prince? And so... I, and, and I also found it fascinating that the Phoenicians, which she was a Phoenician princess, invented the alphabet. Oh, wow. So they, they're the ones that, that moved the language away from being written in symbols like hieroglyphs 
to being written in, in syllables, okay. right? And so in her short story, I have her constantly playing, like, just word games. Like, mm-hmm. in her mind, like, you know how some of us do that. We just kind of let our minds wander as we're working on stuff. And so I have her constantly thinking about how, oh, if you change one syllable in this word to this, you get this. And then that sets her off on this sort of, like, memory of her life. And you're kind mm-hmm. of getting her story in flashbacks. And so because, like, it's one syllable, Jezebel, Jezebel... And, I, okay, I have no historical backing for this. Right, but right. one of my creative liberties that I took was she is not present at the showdown on Mount Carmel where mm. Elijah faces down against the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asher or whatever. But in that story, uh, if you don't know that story, it's in, I think, 1 Kings 18 or 19. I don't remember. Uh, one, or somewhere around there. But Elijah, it's been it's been no rain for three years, which again, Baal is a rain god. So this is Yahweh directly like blocking Baal's power. Elijah comes to Ahab and says, I, I want to basically have a showdown of the gods. And so they, they challenge, bring all the prophets you want. We're going to meet on Mount Carmel and we're both going to build altars. And the God who answers by fire is the true God. And that's right. who Israel is going to worship. And so he lets the prophets of Baal go first and... They start chanting and, you know, nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. And then Elijah says, maybe he's asleep. Mm. And so then it says they start chanting louder. Mm. I thought, well, if they're trying to wake him up, they would be chanting Jezebul, Jezebul, Jezebul. Mm. And then he says, which this is something our English texts uh, obscure, but he basically says maybe he's relieving himself. And again, more crudely, maybe he's taking a dump. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's that Zebel word, uh, right? Mm. And so I just, I basically have where Elijah gives her a nasty nickname and changes it from Jezebel, where is the prince, to Jezebel, queen of poop. Mm. And I don't know if that happened at Mount Carmel, but all, like, all the pieces are there. Right, right, right. And it would just give a little bit of extra explanation for why she hates him, like, so much. I mean, there's plenty of reasons, right? But, like, I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever been given a nasty nickname. Like, it sucks, you yeah. know? And so... That like that wasn't even like the main point I was making about Jezebel. That's not where I go in the non. It's not about like name calling or any of that kind of stuff. But it was just like all of that. Like the Phoenician made the alphabet, and she does these syllable name games. And I got to do this piece like in the fiction. Mm. Like it was just fun, and it it felt good. It felt like a creative sort of like spin on a Bible story. That's a one of my favorites, and b like one I've heard a hundred thousand times, and never like that's never been brought into it. Right. So, right. Anyway, that was like probably. Like the most fun I had writing. Gosh, I love it. It's fascinating. Um, well, tell us one more. What, what, what would be another one that you're really excited about? Um, let's see. I, I mean, I've, I in in their own way, I'm excited about all of them. I'm I'm a little anxious. The book hasn't come out while we're recording this. I'm a little anxious to see what people make of my take on Satan mm. because I really dive into the fact that like the whole, I call it the Lucifer myth, this idea that he was an angel that was the worship leader in heaven that rebelled before the creation of the world. Like none of that's actually in the Bible anywhere. Right. And what you actually see about Satan is that he was this prosecuting attorney for God who basically lost his job in the, in, in the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And so Revelation 12 actually locates the war in heaven after Jesus ascends to heaven. Mm. And so I I basically have, I write Satan as a character who is so committed to the purity and holiness of God that he can't abide a God who would welcome sinners. Mm. And so like, and he ends up going to war with God to save heaven's purity from God. Oof. And so then in the nonfiction, I talk about how often 
we as Christians fall into the same trap the Pharisees did in Jesus's day, which is we're so concerned with holiness and purity that we actually exclude the people that God is busy welcoming. Mm. Um, and I think there's a line, I, I, I don't remember exactly how I said it at this point, but I, I say something like Christians who refuse to extend grace to others are truly satanic. Mm. And so I, I'm just interested to see what happens if people dig that take or if they decide I'm a heretic and, you know, want to drive me out. But the fiction, it feels really fantastic. Because I had to set it in the throne room of heaven. Like, how do you, like, you know, how do you you write that? And so I chose to use uh, all the other archangels. I I gave them, because they're named, like, Gabriel means the strength of God. Mm. Gabriel, El is like God. Raphael means the healer of God, mm. all of those. And so I actually I actually give them names like Gabriel is just called the strength. Mm. Uh, Raphael is just called the healer. And they refer to the, each other as these like titles. Mm-hmm. And so Satan is the accuser. Mm. And so, yeah, like I have, uh, I kind of do all of that. So it, it, and it feels, again, it feels ethereal. It feels fantastical, which was way outside my comfort zone. Right. But I'm hoping that again, by the time you get to, where he draws his sword and charges the throne, mm. like you're kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, I, I get it, you mm-hmm, know, I get why mm-hmm. he's so upset, um, I get why he's so angry, because mm-hmm. um, then I, I think that sets it up really good, really well to do some difficult introspection. Mm. What was the hardest part about writing the book? Uh, or what maybe what part did you wrestle with the most? Yeah, that's a, man. That's a good question. I th- okay. So in the Judas chapter, the nonfiction chapter, I really wanted to talk about race mm. and particularly how the white church uh, can't seem to figure out how to talk about race. Mm. And so, what my my take on Judas is that I think it's I think it's fascinating that he betrays Jesus, but then it's when Jesus is condemned to death by Pilate that he commits suicide, mm. and he tries to give the money back. Right. So that, to me, if he was planning to betray Jesus and wanted Jesus to be, like, he, growing up a Jew under Roman occupation, like, you know what happens when you cross Rome, you cru- crucified. Like, they saw hundreds of crucifixions in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. So it can't have been a surprise to Judas that Jesus was crucified unless he didn't expect Jesus to get crucified. But if he didn't expect him to get crucified, why would he have betrayed him in the first place? And the only sense I can make out of it is following uh, things like Jesus Christ Superstar or a little bit like The Last Temptation of Christ, like these kinds of takes, where like maybe Judas actually thought Jesus was the Messiah and he was like so convinced of it, but he was committed to this wrong picture of God, this like triumphalistic Messiah. And what he sees, and I, this is my argument, I mean, I'll, it's expanded a lot more in the book, obviously, but what he sees during Holy Week is a, a Jesus who's giving up, mm-hmm. a Jesus who's like giving himself over to death. And, and so if you think he's the Messiah and you think he's giving up, but you know he's the Messiah and like this is the time and, the, you know, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you put him in a situation where he has to call down the armies of heaven. Mm-hmm. And you know in the core of your being, because you've seen him cast out demons, you've seen him heal, you've seen him calm the storms, you've heard these teachings like no one has ever taught before. You know that as soon as he's put in that impossible situation, he's going to have to rise up and seize his messianic mantle. And so you you betray him. Mm. And then he gets condemned to death. And if there's no room in your theology for weakness for a God who dies... Like, you, you give over to despair. Mm. I think that's the only way it makes sense that Judas would kill himself. So I then asked the question in the nonfiction, like, 
to what extent are we triumphalistic? To what extent do we resist? And and I I use this I use the phrase the, the smell of death or the odor of death because I think that the, well, the moment that Mark tells us that Judas besides decides to betray Jesus is when the woman anoints Jesus at Bethany, mm. and she uses this burial perfume, mm. and Jesus doesn't chastise her. In fact, when the other one of the disciples try to like. When the disciples try to chastise her, he says, no, what she did is good. Mm. And so Judas, it's this like, when this like funeral perfume wafts into their midst and Jesus embraces it, it's, it is right after that. And we don't see it because our study Bibles put a different heading in there. So we stop reading, right? But it's right after that moment that Mark says Judas decided to betray Jesus and he went mm. to the high priests. And so I say like, what are the things, what are the fragrances of death, of vulnerability, of weakness that waft into our churches that make us go, nope. And I think I think race conversations are one of them because as soon as you start talking about race, there's all this guilt, there's all this shame, there's all of this like bad stuff mm. that that begins wafting in, and we don't know how to deal with it because our theology doesn't have room for weakness and vulnerability and lament, mm. and so we just wall it off. We just yeah, shove, you know, shove it away and say all lives matter or like whatever. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk about those things, and it was one of those things that in my head it was a very clear connection, but my editor pushed back pretty hard, and he said, I don't, like, it seems like it kind of comes out of, it seems like you just wanted to talk about race, and so mm. you just kind of stapled it onto this Judas material, and, and a couple of, the, a couple of the, the outside readers that they got for that editing, that content editing process kind of said the same thing. Mm. So, like, really spending some time trying to work through okay, if I want to do this and if I want my readers to come with me and if I believe that there is this connection here, I've, I've just got to work really hard to make it more apparent. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was, that was I think, probably the, just from a writing perspective, that actually surprisingly was the most challenging part. It was much more challenging than writing the fiction ended up being. Mm-hmm. So, Tell me about the move that you make from fiction to nonfiction, fiction to nonfiction. How did that come about and is that something you have always wanted to do kind of explain yourself in that way no i mean it's it's something that i i i love fiction i read more fiction than nonfiction, mm. but i've never considered myself a fiction writer uh i do this is gonna sound so dumb and saying that i never thought of myself as a fiction writer but i read a ton of craft on writing too like how to write good stories how to write good characters all this all this stuff so i guess when i add that's why i say when i sat down to write the fiction it was actually a lot easier than I thought it would be because mm. I read so much fiction and I read about writing fiction. I don't know why it never occurred to me to be a fiction writer, maybe just because I write nonfiction so much. Mm. But I think I think for me the move was I had to figure out a way to get past just an academic understanding of these individuals because I think that's what's missing in our in our if, if I let me back up. My ultimate goal for this book is not that you feel differently about Delilah when you finish it. I don't actually particularly care overly much how you feel about Delilah. She's long dead. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Uh, I say I don't mean to be too mean to Delilah, but that, you know, ultimately I want, my hope for this book is that these become opportunities to practice empathizing with someone that formerly you would have said, like, there's no way, no way. I don't have anything in common with Judas. I don't care about Herod. Mm-hmm. You know, Jezebel, just evil queen, whatever. Mm-hmm. To humanize someone. Yeah, to practice humanizing, right? Because, yeah. yeah, again, if we can practice on these people that most people who are picking up the book have at least heard of these people, mm-hmm. uh, most people, uh, particularly believers, have pro- they've probably been like the boogeyman or boogeywoman in the story as long as they've been hearing these stories. Mm-hmm. So if we can practice seeing the humanity of this other person, yeah. maybe, mm-hmm. maybe in our current culture where there's just this complete refusal to to reach across the aisle to reach across the issue Mm -hmm. and try 
try to engage someone else, try to see things from their perspective, try to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become mm-hmm, angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe that's my hope. Maybe this would, this would do that. And so I knew that if, if that was, if that was really what needed to happen, it had to move beyond academic intellectual lecture style movements and, and the nonfiction, that's just what it does. Right. I mean, you can have really beautiful nonfiction paragraphs but at the end of the day it's still mm-hmm. it's still primarily appealing to reason yeah. and I think one of the great things about narrative is narrative short circuits that and it moves into emotion and appeal because you're you can't help but put yourself in the story as one of the characters mm-hmm. and so by sort of spinning the camera around from the biblical text and putting you behind Cain's shoulder mm-hmm. right instead of behind Abel's shoulder mm-hmm. uh, it made you feel what Cain felt mm-hmm. and again not in a way that you uh, my goal isn't that people are like, you know what? I think actually Delilah's pretty great now. Like, I don't, I don't want people to think that she made the right decision or whatever. That's right. not, it's not about apology or condoning. It's just about understanding, you mm-hmm. know. And at the end of the day, if people are heartbroken mm-hmm. about what Cain decided to do, mm-hmm. if they are actually a little nervous because when you get right down to it, you're not sure if you would have made a different decision than Herod. Mm-hmm. I think then, then it becomes a lot easier to say, well, who else in your life might you be misunderstanding? Yeah. Who else if you gave them a second listen or maybe a first listen? Mm. So that I, and I just, I think narrative does that better. So I knew if the, if, if I wanted the book to do what I wanted the book to do, it ha- there had to be narrative in it. And I was just going to have to try to write it with fiction in it. Mm. Well, and what a, what a relevant practice for readers to, um, practice that move from othering to identifying that allows us to see ourselves in some of these characters. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, for me, it's been really, it's, it's sat with me. Like when I've seen scrolling through on Facebook and seen something that I vehemently disagree with, Mm. it's made me check myself and say like, I wonder why they think that way, you know? And, and, and I've learned one of the things I've, it's been reaffirmed to me through this book is that I can do a lot of really hard work Mm. to get to where I can see their perspective Mm. and disagree with them. You know, because at the end of the day, I don't think Judas made the right call, obviously. Right. You know, uh, I don't think that, I don't think Jezebel should have killed all the prophets of God, Mm. you know, so, so I can, but I, but I have so much more compassion and and care for them. And I see them, again, I see their humanity. Yeah. Um, I closed the book with a quote from a friend of mine named Juliana Baggett, who is a, uh, a y- well, she's an author just in general, but she has a YA series. It's like one of those post-apocalyptic Hunger Games type series. Mm-hmm. It's called The Pure Trilogy. And in the first book, there's this amazing villain named El Capitan. And I think even by the end of the first book, but certainly in the second book, he became one of my favorite characters. Mm. And so we interviewed her on our Storyman podcast. And I asked her specifically about this El Capitan because when you first meet him, he is just terrifying. Mm. And then when he, like, he very quickly becomes compelling Mm. and then sympathetic and then someone you're rooting for. Mm. And I just thought it was fantastic. You just don't see that very often in fiction. I never cared about President Snow in The Hunger Games, you know, or right. Voldemort in Harry Potter. Right, you know, right. Whatever. It's an unusual move. Yeah. And so we asked her about it, and she said, you know, when I when I created him, he was just going to be like the boogeyman, mm. you know. And then the I, tr- I always try to remember the quote exactly right because it just blew me away. She said, uh, then I got to know him, and and I, I kind of ended up liking him. And she said, when you see someone's full humanity, forgiveness is a breath away. Oh. That was sort of my goal for the book, right, is... Can we learn to find someone else's humanity mm. 
before we rush to judgment and condemnation. Because if we don't, I think we end up in the same place as Satan. Yeah. Gosh, it's great. And what a creative way to help people practice that humanizing. I hope it works. I hope people like it. It's beautiful. I love it. Um, so tell us about the book. Where can we get the book? You can pre-order on Amazon or at University Press right now. Um, it comes out November 7th. Mm-hmm. So, and it should be basically everywhere. There's going to be an audio book of it. So if you're not a reader and you like to listen more, which obviously you probably do if you're listening to this. So you can get, I don't even know who's performing it. I, I, oh, you didn't, you didn't read it? No, they got some, I don't know. I requested Melissa McCarthy and they said that was unlikely. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, but you know, here's hoping. I don't know. Right. So yeah, I have no idea who's performing the book, but I'm sure it'll, I'm sure it'll be great. It'll be weird to listen to someone else read my personal stories. Right. Like when I was a kid, I'm like, what? what? Uh, <laughs> right, right. So yeah, it should be, I mean, it should be everywhere. Oh man, that's great. So exciting. Congratulations. Thank tell, you. tell us about the next book. What are you working on now? Uh, so if you haven't read Richard Beck, shout out to Richard Beck, you should. Uh, he, in his book, Unclean, he talks a lot about scapegoating and monsters. Mm. And so the the next book I want to write is is actually going to be pretty heavily informed by that stuff. But uh, I'm still I'm still kind of playing around with titles. And uh, what I want to do is talk. So so the stuff I've already worked up is on werewolves. Mm. So I actually found a court document from like 15th century France, mm-hmm. and it allowed the citizens of this particular like county, basically I forget what they call it. Uh, it allowed them to hunt werewolves. And the document was very clear that it is still illegal to murder humans, mm. but that if you find a werewolf, you are allowed to kill it. Oof. Court document. Mm. Court document. Like a legal binding document that takes werewolves seriously and, and legalizes murdering them, which I'm just dumbfounded by. Yeah. And I think today we look back on belief in werewolves and we say, well, that's silly superstition, whatever. But... The people of the day were so convinced that some of the people living among them were these monsters that they mm. legalized harming them. Mm. And so in the first, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I got hooked on this fiction thing. So <laughs> in the first chapter, the first chapter of each of the monsters is going to be this like fictionalized retelling of that, of those stories. And again, I want to do the same kind of thing. I want to go, what did it, what would it feel like to really believe that these werewolves were real creatures? And yeah. so I, I, again, I found a, uh, a story about a guy who was arrested for being a werewolf. He confessed to being a werewolf, and he was executed for being a werewolf. And wow. so I kind of retell like that confession scene with this guy who's saying like, "Yes, I am a werewolf." Mm. And then I go into kind of a historical chapter, which is more about like why, why then, like why was it in this in this particular time and place that people actually like started taking werewolves like seriously, you mm-hmm. know? And it has a lot to do with the fact that it was the enlightenment. And so people were beginning to say that, that we don't need God anymore. That, that, that I, I think therefore I am what makes us human is our ability to reason. And that, that our, our reasoning ability will ultimately uh, is will ultimately will bring us salvation, right? It'll, it'll cure every ill. It'll bring peace in society. And then at the same time, you have this story that starts getting told about humans who revert to their base animal selves. Mm. They lose their ability to reason and they lash out and hurt everyone uncontrollably. Mm. And so I think it's fascinating that the monster story sort of functions as this um, sort of like signal lamp that shines a light on the 
the parts of our like master narrative that we don't want to admit mm. or like the dark parts. Mm. And it always ends up that we externalize these fears. We put them onto a marginalized group of people and then we oppress them. Mm. And so the last chapter that I, the last movement I want to make is no one believes in werewolves anymore. Not really. So who, what, what monsters is the church creating today? Because we still have master narratives that are still false in some ways, and we still fear things, we still externalize them, and then we still oppress those groups of people. Mm. And so specifically with werewolves, I want to talk about the LGBTQ community and say the way that we talk about, we being evangelicals, talk about the LGBTQ community is that they are these these sexual deviants who can't control themselves who like to prey on children. Mm -hmm. And so there are plenty of churches that have policies that LGBTQ persons cannot serve in children's ministries because they're dangerous to children. Mm -hmm. And so I want to show that, that just as we look back at these werewolf stories and say that it's silly, that they were silly, and that the harm that they were doing was like so unfortunate and unavoidable, I want to say that the way we talk about LGBTQ persons is just as dangerous, just as wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's, and what it's actually a function of is our own inability to shine light on how we as evangelicals understand sex and sexuality and deal with the fact that like, uh, churches are havens for sexual predators. Right. Mm -hmm. But again, rather than face that, we'd rather like externalize that and put it on and I think there's I think there's some linkages between werewolf stories and the way we demonize and monsterize LGBTQ. And so I have I have like five different monsters and I kind of do that same movement with each one. So like with with demons, I'm probably gonna talk about immigration is like people, you know, these outside beings who come into the home space and render it unrecognizable and uninhabitable and you mm -hmm. have to drive them out, you know, like all this and that's that's how we talk about immigration and uh, you know, probably do witches and talk about feminism and the church's inability to like deal with powerful women well and like all this kind of stuff. So that's kind of the idea is just and I, I love monsters and horror movies and all that kind of stuff. So it'll be a kind of a fun book. But ultimately, I hope that, again, there's this movement towards recognizing that we are often not only the monster makers, but the monsters. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that if we keep fighting monsters outside of ourselves, we'll never, we'll never find the healing that God wants to bring, you know, to we'll us. We'll never reckon with the monsters yeah. inside. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Oh, that's great. So. Um, tell me a little bit about your podcasts. I know you've, you've got a lot of projects. So yeah. just give a quick shout okay, out to, so. your, to your podcast. Storyman is my main podcast. Uh, that's me and two other authors. And we, we used to say we're pop culture, faith, and theology. But we basically talk about kind of, we do a lot of pop culture, like movies and TV shows and stuff like that. But we bring on a lot of authors. Mm. And so... Uh, we've had everyone from like George R. R. Martin who wrote the Game of Thrones stuff. We got 15 minutes with him just kind of coincidentally one time to people like John H. Walton. Uh, we're going to have Richard Beck on when his new book comes out. Mm. Uh, people like that. So uh, Deb Hirsch, I don't know if you're familiar with her. Um, so we just have a lot of authors. And we try to bring on people that we're interested in and care about. And yeah. then, again, hopefully our listeners will be interested in care. Uh in All Things Charity is my Wesleyan Feminist Theology podcast that I host with two female pastors. Uh, so recently, it's it's Tara Thomas Smith is mm -hmm. is the other uh, the other one that's been with me since the beginning. I actually uh, is the one that started it. And then uh, Heather Gerbsch Darty, who is the chaplain at Belmont University, who's ordained Nazarene elder, uh, had to take a step back this semester because of her schedule at the university. And so yeah. we invited Robbie Kanzler on, who's I know a friend of the show. Mm -hmm. um, we had her on. This yeah, podcast. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I felt bad when we had her on and we were like, tell us about your stuff. And I was like, we should have just been like, go listen to the, this Nazarene Light because it's like a lot of the same content. I was like, what? Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so she has stepped in. Now she's having a baby at the in December, late December, early January. And so she, she was like, yeah, I can definitely fill in for a semester. Like, that's actually about perfect. So mm. she's been on this season and it's been super fun to have her on. I mean, you know, she's just awesome. awesome. So. 
Um, and then I'll just, the one other one I'll mention is Don't Split Up, which is a horror movie review podcast that I do with my wife <laughs> and one of her roller derby teammates and then a friend of ours who lives in Ohio who hates horror movies, but he really wants to be famous, so he's hoping that this podcast is his ticket to the top. <laughs> so it's really fun with him because he's just like, yeah, this was terrible, and I hid my face the whole time, and it's, it's great. So, oh, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, on that one, like, one of the things we try to do is talk about the culture, like, what is this film doing in culture? You know, so mm-hmm. we're getting ready to do an episode on Rosemary's Baby, which came out in 1968. And it's it's all about, like, the breakdown of the nuclear family and the fears of, like, what, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's it that's why I love horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, not just because it's fun to be scared, but, like, I think there's so much cultural value that we can get if we listen to mm. why, you know, what's behind the horror movie. So. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what we do on that podcast. So, if people want to follow you, follow your work, yes. um, subscribe to your newsletter, how do they do that? That's it. That's the best place. If you go to stuffyou'llprobablylike.com, that'll take you to my sign-up page for my newsletter called <laughs> Stuff You'll Probably Like. Because, I don't know, maybe you won't like some of the stuff, but you probably like some of it. Uh, so, on, in that newsletter, I do weekly pop culture picks. So, like, here's a movie, here's a book. Here's I like Unclean was, like, two or three issues ago. That was, you know, one of the picks, the Richard Beck book that we keep gushing over. Um, I also do like a devotional writing that is one of my favorite things I write every week. Like it's my place where I get to get really weird. Like I, I, I'm, I'm a Kesha fan. I'm not, I was going to say closet. I'm not a closet Kesha fan. I'm a, I'm an open Kesha fan. <laughs> and she had a, she had a song on her new album called Him. And one of the things she says in the chorus, it's like, this is a hymn for the hymnless, the kids with no religion. Mm. And she's talking about, like, it's basically church for people outside the church, you know. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. So I actually wrote up a whole devotional one week on that song. And it's mm. the kind of writing that I get to do, like, I can't really do it in sermons because it's, it's either just, like, a little bit too outside the box or it's short or it's just weird or whatever. So I really play in that devotional. I, mm. I mean, I take it seriously, but I, I that's where I think some of my most creative writing is going on. And then I also have a whole section that's just, like, all the stuff. So, like, when this episode comes out, like, that week I'll be like, hey, I got to be on this Nazarene Life, and here, you know, go like that, and here's the other podcast. So it's, like, everything I do, a blog post that I write, whatever, it's all, like, in that little section there. So that's the easiest place where I kind of put everything that I do, like, in one spot. Stuff you'll probably like. I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time to Uh, be on the show. It's such a tremendous honor. I love this show. I love Young Clergy Network. Yeah, awesome. Thank you.